Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, it's Rafi. So we spent the last 15 months working on Bolted, and we've been blown away by the support and engagement that you've had with us since the show's release. Just a few days ago, on the night of March 31st, I exported the final episode of Bolted that you're about to hear, and I felt like I had finally shut the door on a big chapter of my life. That lasted all of about 12 hours, because on the morning of April 1st, Nathan Fenno of the LA Times released a story that Dia Spanos Barbarian, the younger sister of Dean Spanos, filed a petition in Los Angeles Superior Court that seeks to force the sale of the Chargers franchise. This is all a developing story at the present moment, but some highlights from the story are Dia Spanos Barbarian alleges the Spanos family trust's debts and expenses exceed $353 million. She also alleges that in November of 2019, Dean vowed to retain an investment bank to sell the team after the 2024 season. The petition also states, quote, Dean has failed to present any plan to address the trust's bleak financial picture because there was no other plan than the one urged by Barbarian. Dean simply refuses to discuss it. His plan is hope. End quote. In response, Dean Spanos, along with his other two siblings, Alexei Spanos and Michael Spanos, said, quote, For the three of us, the Chargers is one of our family's most important legacies, just as it was for our parents. Unfortunately, our sister Dia seems to have a different and misguided personal agenda. They later added, quote, Operations of the Chargers will be entirely unaffected by this matter. End quote. The three Spano siblings insist that they can buy out Dia's share of the team, but it's worth noting a few things here. The Chargers still owe the NFL a large portion of their $650 million relocation fee for their move. On top of that, Dia's share of the team is likely to be valued at somewhere around $500 to $600 million. Another relevant note is that Dia Spanos Barbarian has retained attorney Adam Streisand to represent her. Streisand was the same lawyer who helped Steve Ballmer buy the LA Clippers when Donald Sterling was forced to sell that franchise, and helped Jeannie Buss get controlling interest in the Lakers during her family's legal fight. All of this is to say, it's a lot of information, it's very new, and I don't think we're going to be closing the door on Bolted quite yet. We're working our hardest and our fastest to get a bonus episode to you in the coming weeks that can dig deeper into all of this. Now, it's a developing story, like I said, facts may change quickly, so all I ask is for a little bit of patience. But for now, enjoy the series finale of Bolted. He's the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, joining us, Dan Patrick Show. It's September of 2017. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti had become somewhat of a regular guest on The Dan Patrick Show, and he was calling because L.A. had just achieved something that San Diego could only dream of, getting awarded the Summer Olympics. So good to be with you. Uh, it's amazing. People are so pumped up. Uh, U.S., I think, has bid more than any country, and Los Angeles more than any city, and after a long drought, the Summer Games are coming back to America. But soon, the conversation shifted gears. How important was it to have not one but two football teams in uh, in town? Oh well, I'm a Rams fan till the day I die, so I was excited <laughs> to get the Rams and and the Chargers are, are gravy, and and my heart goes out to folks in San Diego because I I remember as a kid what it was like to lose not just one but two teams when the Rams and Raiders left. The Chargers hadn't even played their home opener since relocating. The ink was still wet on their new LA lettering. But this was the reception that the Chargers were finding for themselves in Los Angeles. Yeah, I didn't think you needed San Diego. I hate I hated seeing the Chargers relocate there, but I understood the Rams. But I could you have done with just the Rams in town? Would that have been enough? Absolutely. You see, despite their proximity, Los Angeles is nothing like San Diego. Two hours on the freeway may as well be a world away. The rules are different. In San Diego, the city had to beg and plead to keep their football team, offering up massive tax subsidies in the process. But in Los Angeles? You know, we always said in L.A. that the NFL needed us more than we needed them, and we weren't going to be one of those cities that subsidized the stadium. And that was a 20-year you know, standoff. San Diego loved the Chargers, but they needed them too. This is the mayor of Los Angeles saying out loud on the radio that his city's newest team isn't wanted. 
L.A. doesn't need anyone. And as for the love? Both the Raiders and the Chargers, it would have been nice if they, they could have, uh, you know, stayed put where they are because Oakland and San Diego have huge fan bases. So uh, we embrace any team that comes. We're certainly happy to have the Chargers in L.A., but um, I think we could have been happy with just one, too. The Chargers' move to L.A. is the NFL's grandest experiment yet. A test of civic pride, media market rights, and real estate deals. Money, power, and just a little bit of football. In our final episode, we'll look at where things stand. What happens when one city loses its team and another city gains it? How has that move redefined success for the NFL in the future? And how does San Diego move on as America's biggest football widow? I'm your host, Rafi Cantor. This is Bolted. Chapter 6. The Fight for Nothing. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. And the only place you should be betting on these sports is at betonline.ag. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. The 2021 Oscars are around the corner, and we have an absolutely stacked Best Picture category this year. Right now, Nomadland with Francis McDormand, the god, is the heavy favorite to take home the award at minus 500. But we have some great value bets down the list. Minari is in second place at plus 700. Amazing film if you haven't seen it. This is Steven Yoon's world and we're living in it. They're tied with The Trial of the Chicago 7, but my real value pick is Judas and the Black Messiah. Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield running circles around each other for two hours. It's incredible. And somehow it got odds at plus 1600. I am taking that to the bank. Bet Online has hundreds of props with real time odds and almost anything you can imagine. And of course, the 24 hour online casino. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's betonline.ag. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. This episode of Bolted is brought to you by Snakebite Coffee. Snakebite is a small roasting company who specializes in small batch roasting. The coffee ships to you the same day it is roasted, and it never sits on a shelf. The reason other coffee tastes bitter is because it's stale and over-roasted. Snakebite goes to great lengths to make sure every batch is roasted to perfection. Coffee beans should never sit for more than two weeks. Snakebite has single-origin blends and specialty blends available for purchase. Get 10% off with the code BOLTED on their website, snakebite.coffee. That's B-O-L-T-E-D at snakebite.coffee. Snakebite. With enough coffee, nothing is impossible. Last episode, the Chargers had announced that they would be moving to Los Angeles after 56 years in San Diego. It was an ending that, if you've made it this far, was obvious and yet still somehow shocking. With the Chargers now in L.A., both the team and San Diego were experiencing more change than ever before. This episode is a look into how, at least at first, they both failed to accept that change. And by the end, it will be clear that one has begun to adapt better than the other. For the Chargers, it is important to understand what made their move so unique. For more, here's ESPN LA's George Sedano. I think the challenge for them was that much unlike the Rams, who at least were here 20 years ago, playing in Anaheim and playing at the Coliseum prior to that, I mean, the Chargers have one season in L.A., you know, in 1960, and then they were down in San Diego. So so not only did the Chargers lack a real history in L.A., but at just about 120 miles, it's the shortest distance an NFL franchise has ever moved. This meant that the Chargers would have all their erstwhile fans breathing down their necks as they tried to establish a new home in L.A. L.A. Chargers beat reporter for the Orange County Register, Gilbert Manzano. They had to at least know somewhat that at first it's going to be it's going to be a struggle that you just you just left the, the city you, you've known for 50 plus years and they're only two hours away from you. So you're going to feel that heat. And then you go into L.A. fan base that probably doesn't feel like we needed a second team. And there's so much to do. And, and it kind of just felt like we hate that team from San Diego. That team from San Diego. The Chargers brand was so tied to San Diego that many like radio host Arash Markazi thought that they should ditch it. As much as I do love the, the, the Chargers name and logo, what I thought is that they should have done what the Seattle Supersonics did is leave the, leave the name, logo, history back in San Diego and start fresh here. There's an entire generation of fans that you could win over by saying, help us 
name the team? What should be the what should be the the logo, the mascot, the colors? I mean, we really make it authentic to Los Angeles. Rebranding is a move that many relocating franchises undertake. The Sonics became the Oklahoma City Thunder upon their move, and the Montreal Expos of baseball became the Washington Nationals. But the San Diego Chargers were now the LA Chargers. This all showed that the organization was bringing an old mindset to an entirely new market, with an entirely different culture. In fact, when you ask Angelinos what defines their sports scene, you almost always get back the same answer. Winning, mostly. It's a star-driven town, and when you've got a heritage that includes teams like the Lakers and the Dodgers and the USC football team, there's not a lot of support generally for teams that are not consistently successful. That's LA Times sports business writer Bill Shaken. And as ESPN LA's George Sedano points out, that culture is pervasive. You can trickle that down, right? Women's basketball, the LA Sparks, right? Like, um, you know, Cheryl Miller back in the day at USC when she was playing college basketball there. Soccer, the MLS, the Galaxy has won uh, the MLS Cup before. And the LAFC, in a very short amount of time, has already been one of the better teams in the MLS. So... To grab people in Los Angeles, you need to win and win big. Daniel Popper is the LA Chargers beat writer for The Athletic. Fans in New York, which is sort of the comparable market to Los Angeles, will always support their teams. You know, the Jets have been terrible for a long time and they still have a huge fan base. The Knicks haven't won a championship since 1973 and Madison Square Garden is full every night. That's not really the case in Los Angeles. If you're not winning, um, there's a lot of other stuff to do. I've lived in LA for seven years now, and I have to say, the idea that they can own the concept of winning is a very LA way of seeing things. You don't think Boston sees themselves as a winning sports culture nowadays? Personally, I would define LA as a market dominated by choice. LA is now home to 11 different major league sports franchises. If you can't capture the city's attention, they'll just go down the street and watch another team. And into this market walks the Chargers. A franchise which has never won a Super Bowl that's owned by a family who wouldn't even pay to upgrade the scoreboard in San Diego. The Chargers' first move as an LA franchise needed to be bold, but instead, it wound up being an infamous moment in graphic design history. San Diego Union Tribune sports editor Jay Posner. You know, from going back to the very day that the move was announced and they came out with that that logo, the Dodger ripoff logo that was just, you know, a complete bust in so many different ways. Almost immediately after tweeting out their decision to move, the Chargers tweeted out a second photo, their new logo. And it really did look like the classic LA Dodgers logo with a little squiggly lightning bolt on the end. America's reaction was relentless. Plenty of Twitter users saying that a striking, they're seeing a striking resemblance here with the Dodgers logo, one calling it a downgrade. How did someone else in a room not look at that and say, we can't do that. It's already been done. I think because somebody walked into the room yesterday and said, hey, we're moving to L.A. We need a logo in 10 minutes. (laughs) And a multi-billion dollar business puts together something like an eight-year-old kid could do in paint. Marisa Canepa worked in the Chargers Public Relations Department from 2016 to 2018. Oh, I just remember Twitter went nuts. Like, every team was, like, adding a little lightning bolt to their logo. Like, am I doing this right? <laughs> it, was, it was really funny. One of my close friends that I worked with um, was one of the graphic designers for the team. And she was, like, posting on social media, like, I was not responsible for this. They brought in uh, an outside firm to do it, basically. And... I don't know. I mean, it, it's hard when you announce something that big and immediately you're like just a laughing stock. So perhaps it's not a mystery that the franchise felt that they had something to prove. Along with their ill-fated logo, the Chargers announced a new slogan for their maiden voyage to the North, Fight for LA. Once again, Marisa Canepa. I mean, no one, no one, that didn't make anyone want to be a Chargers fan. My opinion is that they basically thought like they were trying to get ahead of the idea that people in LA might have that they were just like expecting to come up there and have all of these fans and to uh kind of like show up and all of a sudden there's uh an entire market waiting for them and so I think they were trying to 
um, basically imply that they were going to work really hard to like be a team worthy of being in L.A. By trying to get out ahead of perceived criticism, the Chargers were kind of telling on themselves. They were fighting for a city that didn't want them, while leaving behind the city that did. That became painfully evident on the afternoon of January 12th, 2017, because the Chargers had made all of these announcements, the move, the logo, and the slogan, within hours of each other, all from the inside of their longtime headquarters in San Diego. As angry and heartbroken fans gathered outside, offensive tackle Chris Hairston remembers being called into a team meeting. You know, all ownership came down, all the, uh, it was kind of everybody from upstairs. You know, they come out and they kind of make the full announcement that you hear it on ESPN, then it kind of gets out that it's official. So it was, uh, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a long meeting or anything. They just kind of brought us all together. I was like, yeah, we're moving. All right, you guys can go, uh, you know, get back with us. We'll have all the information for you. And, you know, they kind of, handled it as business as usual almost, you know, just kind of started the process. It happened really fast. In fact, it was so fast that many inside the building didn't know what to do, even while an increasingly irate crowd was forming outside. The real, the one thing I remember was, uh, like, there was, like, nobody going out there, and they were kind of apprehensive about me going out there, but I wasn't... You know, it was like, I, I just kind of made it like I'm walking out to my car and then just stopping and seeing what's going on. The fans that were out, out front, they were they were like, you could tell they were hurt, man. I You can't, like, it, you could feel the hurt. You could see it in their eyes. You could see the way they talk. You could see, you know, even though they were mad burning jerseys and a little upset, like, as soon as you came out there and spoke to them, it was like, man, it sucks, you know. I don't know. Learned a lot about the fan base that day connected with them, I guess, on a deeper level than I ever had. And then there's the business of physically moving. The team had to get players, personnel, staff, and equipment up to LA, and that costs money. But according to running back Kenneth Farrow, that cost was left up to the individuals. I think, I think they did have, they had a, I think they had like a company that was, I guess, like a little bit cheaper rate um, than, you know what I mean, than um, some of the other stuff. Um, so they were they were definitely you know throwing out resources I think um, I, that's the really the only thing I remember was like a moving company that they were trying to hook us up with to kind of help with that situation. But they didn't give you like a stipend or anything. They didn't like pay the. Uh, I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. Not that I remember. Of course, some of those personnel would not be making the trip. The Chargers fired much of their coaching staff in San Diego opting to bring in Anthony Lynn as their new head coach in Los Angeles. And according to O-lineman Joe Barksdale, this wasn't exactly a unifying pick. Like, we had a, you know, pretty veteran team at the time, and, like, the new coach came in, didn't rub well with people. So then you had to deal with that. Do you... I mean, I won't name names, but, like, there are people who are on the Chargers organization, who are still on the team, who, like, who hate that man. Like, granted, he's not there anymore, but, like, Matt Stafford isn't playing. I don't even know anything about sports media, but I know that Matt Stafford asked to be released from the Lions after they hired him as an offensive coordinator. With these off-field distractions mounting, it was becoming harder and harder for players to concentrate on doing their jobs. Once again, Chris Hairston. I don't know, but it was just a lot of different new people, new faces, uh, a lot of different new teammates coming in that year. Um... I don't know. It, it was it was definitely a change, though. Like you could even just the attitude of the team changed based on that too. I I mean I can't really I can't really remember or put my finger on exactly how I want to describe it, but I mean it affected everybody. It definitely affected everybody. I don't want to say it hindered the progress of coming together as a team, but it made it harder. It did it did make it harder. Finally, the Chargers needed to find a place to actually play their football games. After all, their new shared home with the Rams, SoFi Stadium, wouldn't be complete for another two or three years. The spot where they ended up was the very place the Chargers held in a relevant training camp almost 15 years prior, where they had tried and failed to build a stadium with the Raiders. They ironically come back to Carson. That's Carson's former mayor. Albert Robles. They wanted to go to the Rose Bowl, and the Rose Bowl said no. 
they wanted to go to the Coliseum and the Coliseum said, no, we now know because, or because the rate, the Rams were already there and the Ram, and they couldn't do two football teams because of USC, as I understand it. So ironically, they had no other alternative, but to come to Carson. Carson happened to already have a stadium, but you wouldn't call it NFL caliber with a 27,000 seat capacity. StubHub Center, which is now Dignity Health Sports Park, was by far and away the most intimate venue for NFL football, with about half the seats of the next smallest venue. Despite all the other missteps along the way in this move, this was actually a way that the Chargers could stick out in their new market. Arash Markazi. The problem is, and people forget this, they were not giving away those tickets. It wasn't like those seats were not um, empty because there, were, the, the, there was no one who wanted the uh, tickets. They were the most expensive tickets in the league. Why? Because there's only 20,000 seats. And quite frankly, if you're a Packers fan, if you're a Steelers fan, if you're a Bears fan, if you're a... That was the only time in your life that you were going to watch your team play in a 20,000 seat facility. The great irony is that the Chargers were attracting LA football fans, just not the ones they wanted. Daniel Popper. A lot of these opposing fans that are in the stands aren't technically from wherever the team's from. You know, people from, it's not like people from Minneapolis are flying to Dignity Health Sports Market to LA to see the Chargers play the Vikings. These are fans that grew up as Vikings fans in Los Angeles. Um, you know, there wasn't a team in LA for 25 years. And so these are the people that you're seeing going to the games and they're saying, okay, well, my team's coming to town. What's 250 bucks if I can see my team play for the first time in 15 years or whatever it is. Um, and the other side of the coin is that the, the people that actually are buying season tickets that are Chargers fans see an opportunity to make a huge profit on the secondary market. The Chargers had become victims of the very football power vacuum that had propelled the team to Los Angeles in the first place. But the team did make a concerted effort to get certain people to the games. Once again, Marisa Canapa. People who have millions of followers on Instagram, obviously they post one story to Chargers game and that gets a lot of eyes. It, and it wasn't just influencers, like there were, there were a lot of people that were on The Bachelor, but then they're also like, they would get Dodgers players and people um, like Lakers players to come to games and stuff like that. So they basically were just trying to create an image of like the celebrity wanting to attend the Chargers game, which like, again, is like that whole LA facade. As all of these off-field distractions piled on top of one another, it may have affected the team's play. In a city that demanded winning immediately, the Chargers started the Los Angeles era with four straight losses. I mean, I always felt really bad. I really bad for the players. It's, I mean, you, you're walking around the stadium doing work and you hear like the crowd go crazy and you assume the Chargers scored and usually it's the visiting team. It was that dramatic. Running back Kenneth Farrow, an offensive tackle Joe Barksdale. Yeah, that was crazy. That was a that was a little bit crazy. Uh, it was like you know, I, yeah, my college was you know I went to a, you know not not one of the power five schools. We were at U of H and University of Houston, and it was like it was definitely more electric there than it was at the um, what was it the StubHub. <laughs> stub hub yeah and so that was that was kind of shocking because you get out there and it's like dang this is an nfl and like one there's not too many fans in here two there's almost more fans than our fans every week i mean playing for the chargers to sum it up for me would be like being a second class citizen in the nfl i felt i would equate it honestly to segregation in the United States. That's what I would equate it to. Seeing these other players get off of nicer buses, seeing these other players, nice-ass stadiums, nice-ass facilities, shit, supportive-ass fans. And, like, I felt like I had a second-class experience of <laughs> being a professional athlete when it came to, the, you know, the Chargers. Sometimes I forgot I was a professional athlete. That's how shitty of an experience it was. Joe Barksdale retired after the 2018 season, a year which ended for him with injury and subsequently being released by the Chargers. Oh yeah, I was happy. Like, I was happy. Very happy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I finally got to get away from the Chargers and like, I had to deal with, you know, I mean, shitty shit just begets shitty shit when you gotta 
shitty organization that's being managed shittily, you're going to have shitty fans and it's going to be a shitty experience and you're going to be happy when you're out of it. Because you can only play for the money for so long. So do you think because the Chargers were the last time you, team you spent significant time with, that's why you're not in the game today? I know that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that. I know that. With the spotlight of the nation's second largest city now on the Chargers in Los Angeles, people noticed. This was Jimmy Kimmel on his show back in 2017. The Chargers, they only have 27,000 seats at the StubHub Center. It's a soccer stadium. They can't even seem to fill half of it. They claim they do. It doesn't look that way on TV. The Eagles were in town last week. Even Sean Spicer was like, wow, that is a small crowd you guys got there. And so... And on top of the ridicule, there were also the honest difficulties that the country was having adjusting to the Chargers not being in San Diego anymore. Once again, the voice of San Diego's Scott Lewis. The fact that for two years, three years, people still call them the San Diego Chargers, unlike the Rams or the, the Raiders, like they don't get stuck on these. It's just, it, it, it was like a, an organ that the body was rejecting. They could not... The football world could not conceive that this had actually happened. Gaffs during games were constant, from commentators to referees. Down the middle of football field, beautifully executed play by the San Diego Chargers, excuse me, the Los Angeles Chargers, then right back in this thing. First charge timeout, San Diego. Anthony Lynn taking his first and not timeout. exactly San Diego, Carl, is it? Even as the Chargers were entering their second season in L.A., the football video game Madden still featured this introduction to Chargers games. EA Sports coverage of the NFL takes us to the Mission Valley area of beautiful San Diego, California. And as life without football had begun in America's finest city, San Diegans were reacting with a wide range of emotions. The loudest, most measurable feeling was anger. San Diego Union Tribune sports editor, Jay Posner. You know, there's there's still nothing, almost nothing moves the needle on our website like a story about the Chargers doing something stupid. Stories about bad attendance at, at um, the soccer stadium. Stories about fans, opposing fans taking over. Those kind of stories. If, if we could have stories like that every day, our, <laughs> our business would be back probably where it was. Our traffic would be back where it was when they were here. People love to read about the Chargers' failures. But behind all that raw emotion was a much more nuanced, confusing reaction. NBC7's Derek Togerson. For me, it's been that love-hate relationship. You know, like I just I want to make fun of them for every stupid thing they do, and I want you know the guys on the field to have a bunch of success. And I hear about it on Twitter, Facebook, all the time. You can't have both. Like, well, no, why not? Why can't you have them? Why can't you root for the organization to keep doing the dumb, stupid crap they always do? You know what? I have to root for the Chargers right now because of the guys in the locker room that I like so much. And Philip and Antonio aren't going to have any more of these shots. I want them to have success. And I know, I know that means that the team, the ownership has success. But for those guys, I'll put aside the personal pettiness and the bad feelings I feel about the ownership group to let them have that one moment in the sun. And it's hard. It's hard to get to that point. But I would feel like I'm turning my back on my friends if you don't do it that way. It's, there's no winning in this situation, and it freaking sucks. This was the space the Chargers existed in for their first year in L.A. They were nomadic playing in a home stadium while never quite being at home, while most of their fans watched longingly from a city that they had kicked on their way out the door. If this were in any other sport in any other time in history, the LA Chargers may have been on the verge of extinction. But this is the NFL in the 21st century, and as Scott Lewis explains, it's hard not to call the Chargers move a success. The Chargers were just a theory at that point. They had been unmoored from their fan base. So they were no longer a team with a fan base. They were a theory. And the theory was that you could, as the NFL, the NFL was a show and the Chargers were a character in that show and that that character could have no fans of any significance and that the show could still succeed while they built that up. And I, I think 
that's that proved kind of true. You know that they that the NFL is a TV show, and these stadiums are just sound stages, these massive sound stages for this TV show, and that the Chargers didn't need fans anymore. That the that the actual product of the NFL is this giant theater, is just this play. And, uh, and they were a, a bit character in that play. The business publication Forbes tracks the value of every NFL franchise. In 2014, the San Diego Chargers were worth $995 million. Just three years later in 2017, the newly minted Los Angeles Chargers were worth $2.27 billion. There's a widely held belief that the Chargers' meteoric rise in value was due to their relocation to L.A. Hacksaw mentioned that all the way back in our first episode. Because by taking that franchise up the road, the value of that franchise rocketed north of $2 billion. However, it wasn't just the Chargers. Every single NFL franchise, from the Chargers to the Patriots and back to the Jaguars, saw their value double in that time span according to Forbes. Why? The league signed massive TV contracts with networks and streamers. Those contracts currently bring in close to $6 billion a year, and that number is going to rocket to over $10 billion in 2023. And all that money is split evenly across all 32 NFL franchises. The NFL could put a franchise on the moon, and it would still be a wildly profitable venture. The Chargers will not succeed in LA because they needed to be there. They will succeed in LA because they didn't. But that doesn't mean LA won't be more valuable. Why go through all this conflict and heartbreak? Local revenue. This is money that is not split amongst the franchises, but is kept by each of them for themselves. Sports economist, Victor Matheson. Stuff like concession and parking and luxury boxes and personal seat licenses, that all stays local, so you get to keep all of that. Uh, if you're the official bear of the Los Angeles Chargers, and that, that's money they get to keep. Um, an, another example of local advertising that gets to be kept is, uh, uh, you know, naming rights of the individual stadium. So that's local money that gets to pay. Being the official anything of the Chargers is just more valuable if the Chargers are in L.A. and not San Diego. Think about where the Chargers are going to play in L.A. SoFi Stadium with the Rams. Once again, Arash Markazi. Whenever people want to talk about well, you know, could the Chargers just move back to San Diego tomorrow? This is going to take some time. I mean, they have a 20-year agreement in place, and it's not just for the stadium. It's for, it's for partnerships. It's for the official soft drink. It's for the official um, hairline. It's for, like, like, every deal for SoFi Stadium is for the Rams and for the Chargers. Now think about who is paying for SoFi Stadium. The Rams and their owner, Stan Kroenke. I did a piece about this a few months ago about just how good the deal is for the Chargers in LA. They have none of these cost overrun responsibilities. They don't have to sell any uh, seat guarantees. They can um, they can get into a beautiful new stadium for just a bargain. And you can see it in Stan Kroenke's um, reaction to their experience that he realized that they're the ones that saw this more clearly than he did. You know, he's he's putting six billion dollars into the stadium to take care of people and to and to handle people in L.A. And and they they got a free ticket to be part of this show, almost a free ticket. The arranged NFL marriage of Dean Spanos and Stan Kroenke is the culmination of that war between the old money and new money NFL owners that got their teams to Los Angeles in the first place. In Spanos, Kroenke sees the man who is riding on his coattails and Kroenke. Spanos sees a man that is everything he's not, self-made, who married into an even richer family, an NFL owner who was able to finance a stadium entirely on his own, with the wide support of their NFL cohorts. George Sedano. It is a very transactional uh, relationship, right? It is landlord-tenant, uh, to my knowledge. And I don't think there's a huge relationship beyond that. Daniel Popper. I would call it volatile. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone within those two organizations really likes each other, and I think there's quite a bit of infighting that occurs. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so that's about all I can say. But I do know that it's not it's not a dandy relationship by all by by any means. No.
Listen, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Because I've been telling you people about the quality and wonders of Manscaped's Lawnmower 3.0, their performance boxer briefs, and their new refined cologne, and some of you are still not listening to me. I am trying to give you money. Join the other 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with their grooming needs. This is the final episode of Bolted. It's the last chance to take advantage of this incredible deal. Do not regret this for the rest of your life. 20% off and free shipping with the code BOLTED at checkout. That's code B-O-L-T-E-D at manscaped.com. We have another new sponsor for Bolted, and I'm really excited about this one uh, because I haven't owned sunglasses since I was in college. I'm always losing them. I'm always breaking them, mostly because I was buying the cheap stuff. But this week, we have Canaan Sunglasses sponsoring us here at Bolted. It's time to make your outdoor experiences better with Canaan. Canaan Sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity. They're made with Japanese optics that make their lenses clearer, lighter, and stronger, and Italian handcrafted frames that are impossible to scratch. Really good for me. Use the exclusive code CANANCAST15 at Canaan.com to receive 15% off your first pair. That's K-A-E-N-O-N-C-A-S-T-1-5. Canaan. Clearly better. SoFi Stadium sits in the flight path of planes landing at LAX. You can look down and see the largest cable net system in the world on its roof, holding up thousands of LED lights that turn the roof into a giant TV screen. And when you look at this situation and that stadium from an aerial view, it actually becomes really obvious why the Chargers finally moved. Why the team agreed to pay a $650 million relocation fee, far more than they would have had to contribute to a stadium in San Diego. Because that was the cost of admission to pure windfall profit in LA. The Spanoses did not move the Chargers because they would get a lot richer in a few short years. They moved because they would get a little richer, over decades. A few million in sponsorships here, and a few million in luxury boxes there, without any of the cost responsibilities. The Chargers may have stumbled out of the blocks in their first year in LA, but this giant life preserver of cash was going to allow them to keep their head above the water for basically as long as they needed to figure out their new market. I think there was um, a reality check. I think they, they thought they would you know, parachute in, and because it's LA, they would be successful, and it would be all shiny and new and awesome. It's not how it happened at all, you know. They had to, you know, lick their wounds, sort of revamp their organization from a PR and marketing perspective, and you know, return a little more humbled. And I think that's what you see now. You see within the organization generally a more humble group as far as like what it's going to take to be successful in Los Angeles. I don't think they they no longer think that um, you know it's it's bound to be successful. This is the true turning point in this story for the Chargers. After decades of failure, both on and off the field, Los Angeles was forcing the Chargers to do something they never had to do in San Diego. Change. And ironically enough, after they had ditched the slogan, they were actually figuring out how to fight for LA. Anyone that's rooted for sports, even on a small scale, at some point in their life, knows that you don't just switch allegiances. You know, If you've been rooting for a team for 25 years, you're rooting for that team for the rest of your life. That's just how it works. And you're not going to just switch because the team's like, hey, we're in LA. Come join us. We're like, nah, I've been a Vikings fan since birth. I'm not going to be a Chargers fan now. That's not how this whole thing works. And they've done a good job of, of understanding that hurdle and, and sort of shifting their focus to kids. They're like, we want to create Chargers fans out of kids who are still impressionable. And the way they're doing that is getting guys out in the community. A, they have a very talented social media team. Um, they probably make more memes than any other, you know, social media team. And as somebody who like, who a big part of my job is being on Twitter and, and engaging, like they do a really good job of that. LA Chargers beat reporter Gilbert Manzano. Yeah, no, I, I keep giving a lot of credit to that social media team because they, they've gone very creative. They're, they're doing things I've, I've never even heard of. And I, I don't feel like I'm that old. I'm, I'm only 31, but there's things that the next generation really likes and they're really into that. And. Like I, I think I mentioned Call of Duty, uh, and they know guys like Keenan Allen and Derwin James. They love playing video games, and they're putting them in these tournaments, these video game tournaments. And and it's crazy to me. Some of these these gamers, man, they have like a million followers, or I, I don't I don't know what it is. Twitch, and people are just watching them play games on, from home. This long term investment in a younger audience is finally paying off in 2021. 
because the Chargers have a new young star. And then you have Justin Herbert, that changes everything, and you have these new fans that you maybe weren't sure were going to be there at all. Rookie quarterback Justin Herbert, the third quarterback taken in last year's draft, won Offensive Rookie of the Year. Here's former Chargers QB and Pac-12 commentator Ryan Leaf. Well, I was I was one of the only ones out there that thought this is what was going to happen at the next level. I thought he was going to be super successful. His arm strength, his intelligence, his uh, athletic ability, uh, I thought it was going to be a perfect fit at what the NFL game has become now. I will say that the, the Chargers found themselves a quarterback, a franchise quarterback, a guy that can play for 10, 12, whatever years they're going to need him to. And while Herbert's on-field value is enormous, his off-field value could kickstart the team's integration into L.A. Younger people specifically are more player-driven. Like, we have the data that says that, right? Like, you know, not to say that people don't root for teams still, but there is a growing percentage of people that root for players. And, you know, quarterbacks are the most marketed players in that sport. The Chargers have changed. But the question remains, will the same be true for San Diego? There are some elements we covered just in Chapter 5 alone that seem to be repeating themselves. In March 2020, the city voted on another Measure C. Yet again, it was a hotel tax to raise money to expand the convention center. It was like a replay of the Chargers measure in 2016, only minus the Chargers. This time around, it got 65% of the vote. It's a commanding majority but it's still not enough to pass in Prop 13's California. The measure failed. And remember Mayor Kevin Faulkner, the mayor when the Chargers left, that just about everyone labeled as being overly cautious? He reached the end of his term limit in December. Now, he's running for governor of California and is spearheading an effort to recall current governor Gavin Newsom. I know we can clean up California, and that's why I'm running for governor. I'm running to make a difference, not to make promises. Yeah, that still sounds like the same dude. As I noted last episode, doing the same things over and over again is not a recipe for success. So I wanted to know if another city was able to grapple with the loss of a beloved franchise. We asked the athletic Stephen Cohen, our 1994 Chargers expert who's based out of Seattle, if that city has been able to move on from losing the Sonics in 2008. No, there's no moving on. The city's, uh, the basketball fans in the city are incredibly bitter still about the whole, the way that went down. I think in, in a way that will be similar to how Chargers fans in San Diego will feel years from now. I think Sonic fans will be over the Sonics move, uh, you know, 10 years after they get a new version of the Sonics back. Because that's how long it's going to take for people to feel sort of not angry about it. But I don't want to sound all doom and gloom. There are some pretty cool things happening in San Diego sports these days. The Padres have quickly become baseball's most exciting team, and their electric shortstop Fernando Tatis Jr. has agreed to a 14-year contract to remain in San Diego and hunt for the city's first sports title since the 1963 AFL Chargers. But they'll need to get past their biggest rivals, last year's champion, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And there's even a new team that's taken root in San Diego since the Chargers' departure. A football team. Not the football of this story. The football that the rest of the world knows. So the Chargers leaving has given us the opportunity to not only bring a sport back, but to bring this feeling of the community back. That's Andrew Vasiliadis. He's the owner of San Diego's newest professional soccer club. Andrew felt the heartbreak of the rest of the city when the Chargers moved. I was a Charger fan my entire life. Uh, my father purchased season tickets when they did the stadium remodel. So we were season ticket holders, I think sometime in the 90s when they did that. I think it was mid to late 90s. So when it came time to find a name for the new team, there was one word that kept coming to mind in conversations with fans. Loyal. I'll be honest, it wasn't the first name that we landed on. And then we started doing these community listening sessions for other reasons. We weren't necessarily looking for a name. We said, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And no matter what we did, the Chargers came up. And it wasn't necessarily that people were saying, you need to make this name because of the Chargers. It was the feeling that we felt when we listened to what they had to say. And what they were saying was, if you're going to start this, 
you need to commit to us, the people of this community, and it needs to belong to us. And, and we need to feel that, that it's ours and you're never gonna leave us. No one ever specifically said the word loyal, right? That was just after listening session, after listening session, it just came. And finally, the stadium site, the decaying monolith that started this whole story in the first place. It's finally been torn down. Due to environmental concerns, the stadium was demolished piece by piece, fittingly dying as slow of a death as the Chargers' torturous exit, and with it, the last relic of the team in San Diego. Former stadium manager, Stephen Shushan. You know, it was, a, it was a big part of the city. And, you know, I hate to say when it goes down, a lot of, you know, people spent their lives there, um, you know, worked there as a young kid, and it's going to be... Uh, pretty traumatic. I know for me it will be. We were trying to think of where we should end this podcast. And after racking our brains for months, there was one place that became obvious. It is February 13th. It's around 2.20 p.m. And uh, me and uh, our producer Ben and uh, our sound engineer Jordan are all sitting outside of Qualcomm Stadium, or what's left of it. Um, It's pretty surreal. By the time we had made it to the stadium, most of it was gone. But the seats that were left were the ones behind the West End Zone, the same seats where my grandpa and then my uncle sat for five decades. We wound up chatting for close to two hours, but there were a few moments that stood out. So, so uh, I, I don't know who says it. I, I don't know if this is a quote I've just seen on the internet a bunch, and it's been quoted a bunch of times, but uh, I, I, people say, or I've heard people say, there's no such thing as a small market, just small market owners. And that these guys, like any of these teams can, any, any league, any team of any league can afford to do these things if they're willing to, to put the time and effort into it. And... It's crazy that San Diego has had not just one, but a, a few different you know, teams with the similar kind of impact. And I think that's what makes San Diego a quote-unquote small market city. Because I feel like we've, we've brought on that label onto ourselves. A hundred percent. You know, that this stadium was originally built with optimism and that it was this, again, we're going to just build this giant concrete wart that's going to stick out on this, on the, in this city, and we're gonna put two teams there, and we're gonna have, you know, we're gonna put it right next to our big shiny freeways that we just built, and you can park in our big parking lot. That's gonna, you know, you can have your nice car and then drive to your suburban home. And it was, it was such a moment in not just this country, but also this city, like of again this optimism and possibility of 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 what this can be, and it, it just feels like that the vision for what this city is capable of accomplishing has shrunk as time has gone on. And the vision for what we can accomplish is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And aptly, the stadium as we're watching it is just kind of slowly shrinking and shrinking and shrinking away. I don't think San Diego really said no to the NFL at any point. They just said we can't. When our series first released, we caught a fair amount of flack from people on both sides who said we just needed to move on, that we were beating a dead horse. To me, this is moving on, learning from the mistakes of the past so that they won't happen again. The story of the Chargers leaving is not a tragedy. It is a lesson. Don't get me wrong. The Spanos family chose to leave San Diego. But the Chargers, for better or for worse, were treated like a public good. And time and time again in this story, San Diego failed to protect their public goods, their pension system, their infrastructure, their stadium, and their football team. I don't think the NFL is going to be an issue in San Diego for a very long time, if ever. But you know what will be? Homelessness, housing, transportation, heck, pensions again. LA has forced the Chargers to change, to operate differently in their future than they had in the past. When San Diego faces these challenges head on, will they be able to say the same thing? 
We began our series by stating that San Diego doesn't want to change, that its identity was couched in being not Los Angeles. In an unfortunate way, the Chargers moving to LA has become that identity's greatest test. San Diego can continue to operate like a sleepy little beach town, living in opposition to everything that lies beyond Orange County. Or it can carve out a future, not one without the Chargers, but a future of its own. A future where nimbyism and gridlock politics don't stunt the maturity of a truly great city. All it requires is a little bit of change. My name is Rafi Cantor. That was Bolted. Dean Spanos and other members of the Los Angeles Chargers organization declined our request for an interview. Additional music by Daniel Birch. I want to give a special shout out to the people who made Bolted possible. Our producer, Ben Stein, another proud member of the Price Family Preschool class of 2000. His parents, Nate and Lisa, who put up with my picky eating habits when I would sleep over in elementary school and let us work out of their dining room as an office for the show, at least before COVID. Our sound engineer and my sister, Jordan Cantor. You can listen to her new EP under her stage name, Soam, that's S-O-M-M-E, on all major streaming platforms. My boss and mentor, Alex Wu, who taught me almost everything I know about telling a story. You can watch his incredible miniseries, The Terror Infamy, streaming on Hulu. My dad, Ron Cantor, who let us use his weirdly empty office space on El Cajon Boulevard for our first interviews in San Diego back in January of 2020. Our digital and social media whiz, Alex Stein, who lent us his mind and a few shekels to get our marketing campaign off the ground. Josh and Alex of the Believe Podcast Network, who wanted Bolted from the very beginning, and for some reason, took a chance on us when we had nothing to show for ourselves. All of our 48, 48 interviewees who gave us their time and trusted us with their side of the story. And finally, my grandpa, Don Burns. He bought season tickets to the AFL Chargers back in the 1960s and kept them every year until his death in 2007. He took me to my first Chargers games as a toddler. Bolted was made for him and the thousands of San Diego Chargers fans who kept the faith for 56 years. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.